John 12, 1 through verse 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. <clears throat> when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I've titled this morning's message of the real uh, Jesus, and I've, I've done so um, intentionally. I've done so in response to what I think is the human tendency to want to remake God in our own image. We want to remake God in the way that we think best, in a way that meets uh, our expectations. Uh, and so because of that, uh, Jesus means different things to different people, and there are a lot of different versions of Jesus out there. Here are a few uh, ideas that I see. Uh, there's the self-help Jesus, uh, where Jesus is this uh, cosmic therapist who's all about good vibes and, and warm feelings, who just gets behind you uh, as, as, as this cheerleader. He's not demanding at all. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of self-help quotes, maybe a cat poster's involved, you know, that kind of idea. And then uh, there's the nationalistic Jesus where it's all about God and country, or where the God is country, right? And you have this blue-eyed Jesus, and he's, and he's not about us being right with people, but being right over people. Now, there's not a, a global spiritual agenda. There's a national, maybe even an ethnic one. Now, that's one side of the spectrum. What about the other side, the, the social justice Jesus? You know, this Jesus is like the you know, the hippie activist who's not really concerned uh, with the eternal salvation of sinful souls, but he's really mad about the issues of today only. And, and, and the only preaching he wants to hear is the preaching that takes place in social media rant. And then there's the prosperity Jesus. Uh, he wants you rich and happy and healthy and, and successful. He preaches something that's not in the Bible, but we like the way it tickles our ears, that God helps those who help themselves, right? And then there's the suburban Jesus. Well, you know, the soft, domesticated family guy who just wants everybody to be nice and comfortable. 
He's not demanding. There's no drama with this Jesus. And of course, we could go into other versions of Jesus, but all these versions are, are distortion. They take elements of truth and they kind of blend them up with, with our own biases. But our goal for today, this morning, is John's goal. We don't want to consider what might be called in the words of uh, Deepesh Mode, for those of you who are my age, our own personal Jesus, right? We, we, we don't want to cut and paste and, and blend our agendas with him or, or to use him as a hood ornament on our own little ideological card. We want to consider the real Jesus as he's been revealed in Scripture, And John himself said his purpose in writing his gospel account, his goal for why he wrote it, John 20, we've we've heard it repeatedly, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And and that's been our hope through this whole series, series, that that as we've encountered the real Jesus as revealed in John's gospel, we would consider him, but not just consider him, but we would believe in him and have life in his name now and for eternity. And so to that end, John carefully selected and recounted a number of different encounters that that Jesus had with different people. You might remember uh, we talked about Jesus' uh, interaction with Nicodemus, the the curious Pharisee who came to Jesus by night in John 3. And then the Samaritan woman at the well uh, who had many husbands and lots of questions for Jesus. And and, and, and that was John 4, the paralyzed guy who got healed by Jesus in, in John 5. And then the adulterous woman in John 8 who got forgiven by Jesus. All these interactions we kind of walked through and they all kind of culminated as we looked last week at John 11 when Jesus raised his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. And because of all these encounters, all this momentum has been growing uh, around Jesus as a result. Everyone is, was considering Jesus. And many believed in him. But others did not. In fact, some even wanted to kill him. But he was unavoidable because of what he was doing and saying. It was so compelling. Who is this guy? Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. And then he would miraculously feed a bunch of of people. He would say, I am the good shepherd. And then he would miraculously and tenderly help out a bunch of people. And he would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And some believed. Others wanted to kill him, but everyone was considering Jesus. And so the anticipation has been building as we've been making our way through John. You get the sense that all of this is going to come to a head. And in John 12, the story pivots. As we said last week, I mean, the the chapters 1 through 11, the first half of of the book, cover the whole three years of Jesus' public life and ministry. But then chapters 12 to 21, the last half of the book, cover about nine days. And up to this point in John, Jesus has consistently resisted any attempts to accelerate him to king, any attempts to accelerate him to kingship. Remember in, in John 2, the, the wedding uh, at Canaan, there, there's no wine. His mom's like, we're out of wine. And Jesus' response was, my time has not yet come. Uh, at other times, they, 
they would try to arrest Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus has this like ninja-like you know, elusiveness when they're trying to, to grab him and arrest him, but he just slips away. John 6, John 8. And it would say that it was because his time had not yet come. That's why they weren't able to grab him. But now finally, here in John 12, in verse 23, Jesus himself says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, the wait is finally over. The hour has finally come for Jesus to validate his claims that he is God, that he is King, that he is Lord. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so as the chapter opens, he shows up in Bethany, and there's this dinner given in his honor. Bethany is, is this little town just outside of Jerusalem. It seems that Jesus would stay there oftentimes when he was on his way to Jerusalem with Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus. And it seems on this occasion that they're having this dinner, and, and Jesus is the honored guest. Maybe it's because they're just like, hey, he gave us our brother back. How, how will we ever thank him? Let's have a, a big party in his honor. And it was sometime during this dinner that Mary anoints Jesus with this expensive ointment. She takes this bottle of very expensive ointment called nard, and she just pours it out on Jesus' feet. And then on her knees, she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet with this expensive ointment. Mary is all in. She, she is uninhibited. She, she holds nothing back from Jesus. Her love for Jesus is sincere and unapologetic. And Mary here, in the words that were read for us, it stands out in stark contrast to what we are told about Judas, right? And Judas, I mean, is totally the opposite. John creates a sort of dichotomy in terms of being a sincere follower of Jesus. Judas and Mary are on opposite ends of the continuum. Mary's a worshiper. Judas is a pretender. Jesus, J Judas is pretending to care about the things that he knows Jesus cares about, but, but really he's only in it for his own benefit. He's been walking with Jesus for, for a while, so by proximity, he looks like a follower of Jesus, but in reality, he's not. But I also think there's something else going on here as well. Remember, this chapter is all about the fact that Jesus' hour has come, and so there's a sense here in which Jesus is arriving for his own funeral in Jerusalem during this Passover and he knows it, and so he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In other words, Jesus seems to be implying here that Mary, with this anointing, is in a sense preparing his body for a burial a few days even before his death, before his hour has come. And so here we are, we're, we're not yet in Jerusalem, we're still in Bethany, and we pick up the story in verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so you've got this large crowd. They have, they've heard that Jesus is there. They want to see Jesus, and they want to see this man that was supposedly raised from the dead. So, so some people have intentions that are, that are just simply curious. Others have intentions that are, are worshipful. Some have intentions that are murderous, but everyone, again, is considering Jesus. And as we come to the next verse, 
the heading is the triumphal en entry. And if, if you've been around the church, you, this is also known as Palm Sunday. But what we often really fail to really see is the contextual significance of what is happening here. We fail to understand what a dramatic moment nationally this was. You see, the Passover was one of the three great feasts, probably the biggest, where people would pilgrimage from all around the known world, where Jews would come to worship and to celebrate and to remember that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and had provided for them in the wilderness. God has saved us and he has provided for us. And so Jesus is joining the hundreds of thousands of people who are coming into Jerusalem for this massive celebration. But his purpose, Jesus' purpose, was different in coming to this festival. He was about to present himself as king. And the question to be asked is, what kind of king were they going to get? What version of, of Jesus were they going to get? Fame was at, now at, at fever pitch. He had, socially, it turned so many things upside down. He challenged the religion. The religious establishment, there's rumblings about that. He sits with the lonely and the outcasts and loves them. He touches the lepers. And there's rumblings about that. He performed miracles. He turned water into wine. He fed the multitudes. He healed infirmities. He made claims. He took titles, Old Testament titles that were reserved for God. He, he let people worship him. He forgave sin. And so these people at this moment are wondering, is this the promised Messiah? Is he bringing salvation? And is he bringing the kind of salvation that we want? And another important piece of context is that Jerusalem at this time was occupied by Rome. Politically, they didn't have self-governance. They had military occupation. And it was a military occupation of a religious nation by a pagan nation. They were under the, the boot of Rome. And so that's the context of the triumphal entry. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, which is the Jewish national symbol uh, often associated with a military or a political victory. And they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which means save us, deliver us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And the prophet Zechariah had prophesied about 500 years before that the way the Messiah is going to show up on the scene as he's going to be riding on a donkey. And, 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 and so you've got this crowd that's out and they're honoring Jesus. The other gospel uh, accounts fill in some of the details, some saying that the people were, were laying, the, laying branches down and cloaks in front of him to give him this red carpet royal treatment. And the question that everyone sh should be asking is, what Jesus are they going to get? Will, they be, will he be some imagined version or the real Jesus? Specifically, they're, and significantly, they're, they're waving these palms. And that's very likely because many of them were hoping, what they were hoping for was a political and national deliverance that would overthrow Rome. 
They, they, they thought, you know what, Jesus could use his power, could use his clout, people could get behind him, he could, he could be our political military king, and then Rome is gone. You see, the, the thing is, they had a, a historical reference uh, for this. See, there was, uh, this was not the first time that Jerusalem had been occupied. A few generations before, there was a religious leader who became a military leader. He was a priest, and his name was Judas Maccabee. And, and he's really thought of as a bit of a national savior because he successfully led this rebellion, this, this revolt. The Jews took up arms. They shed blood to remove their, their, uh, their occupiers. They, they booted them out of the, the, the pagans out uh, uh, who had taken over and, and desecrated their temple, and they restored worship. In fact, that is where Hanukkah comes from. Hanukkah is a celebration of this event. And so some commentators suggest that the waving of the, palm, of the palms had a connotation that, that they had a version of Jesus that, that he, would, he would come and he would be something of a, politi- a political, um, what he would bring would be something that's political, immediately visible, nationalistic, and even violent. But the Jesus that they want is not the Jesus that they get. This ancient context, king would present themselves with a lot of hoopla, a lot of hype. The king would, would come in on a big white horse with a big sword, and he'd, he'd come to conquer, he'd come to kill. That's how your king usually operates. And so they want Jesus to go and find a stallion and come riding in ready for battle, ready to lead a violent overthrow of Rome to establish his kingdom by force. They want relief now. They want to be saved from Roman oppression now. Do it now, God. God's plan is different. Instead of grabbing a sword and jumping on a white horse, Jesus climbs onto a donkey, unarmed. And he arrives in humility. The expected king is not the actual king. Have you ever had this experience where the Jesus you want is not the Jesus you get? Have you ever had... The, 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 the experience where God's plans are not your plans. Your marriage is dying and, and, and you want it to be fixed now, but, but that's not the way it goes and God's doing something bigger in and through you. Your health is failing and, and you want healing now, but it's not coming. Your finances are on edge and you want relief now, but instead your car breaks down. Right? This world, we rightly talk about the many blessings that God has given us in this world. And the posture of our lives really should be one of thanksgiving and gratitude to all that we've been given. But sometimes when we look around, I mean, it doesn't just sometimes feel, I mean, I read someone this week who described it as, quote, this atrocious dumpster fire of a world. And it does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? Why can't we just get some relief? Why is this so hard? We just want you to do something now, God. But God's focus is always on the eternal, on the bigger picture. John even admits here in this passage that in the moment, they didn't even know what was going on. They were, I mean, they were Jesus' closest followers, and, and, and even they didn't understand these things, it says. After... Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered. Looking back, they're like, oh, God was doing something much bigger than we could ever have imagined here at the time. 
Only once Jesus was glorified did they all realize that his purpose and his plan was huge, that it was eternal. It was to die for the salvation of his people. And so as Jesus presents himself, if you've got expectations, as these people did, that this is going to be a political, uh, uh, be political, immediately visible, and it's going to be national, and it's going to be violent, the real Jesus is going to disappoint you. Because the real Jesus comes to give something that was spiritual, temporarily invisible, eternal, and global. He comes in on a donkey. He comes humbly. He comes unarmed, not violent, not to kill, but to be killed. And sure, he, he came to conquer, but he came to conquer hearts. That's the real Jesus. If you're expecting a coronation, you're going to get a cross. If you're expecting the ravenous lion, you're going to get a sacrificial lamb. That's the real Jesus. And the crowd misses this. In Luke's gospel, when he talks about the triumphal entry, he reports of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Verse 41 of Luke 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, the actual salvation that's being presented to you, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Some of you are going to miss the boat. And it grieves Jesus. Go on to verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew uh, and Philip went and told Jesus. And I think what's so interesting here is that in the midst of a very a Jewish uh, context, John points out something significant uh, that that, that here you have in Jerusalem, you have Gentiles, non-Jewish people, probably God-fearers. We don't know uh, where they were theologically, but we know that they were seeking out Jesus. And, and, and we see in this that the, sal- the, the salvation that Jesus offers is global. It's for everyone. Jesus draws all humanity to himself, Jew and Gentile. You know, be, becoming, he is becoming the, the common denominator for everyone, the ultimate hope for reconciliation and peace, dealing with sin and breaking down barriers between people. But that begs the question, how is Jesus going to accomplish this? Well, verse 23 Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time. The moment has arrived. You want to see my glory? Well, here it is. Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone, Jews, Greeks, if anyone, this is an open invitation, anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. His hour was upon him. His moment had come. He's entered the last week of his life, the climax of John's gospel. He's been anointed. He's been presented. And what we're seeing now is the true mission of the real Jesus. He says, So you want to know what's going to go down? Well, let me give you this farming illustration. This is is an agrarian people. They would have got this, right? A a A little wheat grain stays on the stalk. Then it's just there. But if it goes into the ground, 
then it can grow and bear fruit. And Jesus is referring to himself. He's saying, I'm going to go into the ground. I'm going to go into the tomb. The fruit that results from that is going to be the salvation for mankind. Moreover, Jesus says, my real followers, they're going to have to kind of get with this program because just as he he literally died for the sins of others to to, to give life to all, he's also saying to to his followers that they need to figuratively die to sin so that they can live for him. Now, now you, you don't get that in, the, in our concocted versions of Jesus. I live for me. I, I, I stay true to me. I, I recently read something online where some people were uh, positioning Jesus in a sort of way that was, was, not, was not the biblical Jesus. They were essentially saying you can have your sin and you can have Jesus at the same time. You, 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 know, you don't need to choose. You, you don't need to die to that stuff. But I think that's problematic. Because the sins that took Jesus to the cross, that put nails through his wrists, how are we going to live in them? I mean, yeah, we're imperfect, we make mistakes, we stumble and fall, but how in the world can we just camp out, put our flag there, and be proud of it? It's incongruous. No, we must die. (coughs) We die to these things. We live by dying. Because the real Jesus wants to be king of our hearts. He doesn't want us to, he doesn't want to be just a little accomplice along for the ride. He he doesn't want to be, you know, an advisor. He, He wants to be king. He wants to be on the throne. If you come to the real Jesus, not the self help Jesus, not the nationalistic Jesus, not the prosperity Jesus, but you come to the real Jesus, you're going to have to lay down your own agendas. And you're going to have to die to things. There's no room for two on the throne. Verse 27. (coughs) So then Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we see here, Jesus as a real person. We see his, his real humanity. We see a real struggle here. As he's looking forward to the cross, he's troubled. His soul is in, in deep turmoil, as another translation renders it. And what's amazing here is that even though Jesus is God, obedience is hard. Real obedience is really hard, and and we cannot overlook the cost of the cross here. He said, my soul is troubled, and it wasn't just physical pain. In a few days, there's going to be a crown of thorns, and there's going to be some nails put through him. But no, this this is a soul pain. Because within days, he is going to bear the weight of the sin of the world. He is going to suffer not just a crown of thorns, not just nails. But he is going to experience separation and silence from the Father for the first time in all of eternity. 
And that's crushing. Father is going to turn his face away from Jesus. He's going to pour out his wrath on him. He's going to be plunged into darkness. He who was light. That's what was going to happen. And Jesus knew that. And because he did, his soul was in anguish. And it's going to get worse. <coughs> Mark's gospel, this is going to be in a few days, Mark talks about how Jesus takes his guide to this to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. This is right before Jesus comes with men armed with clubs and, and, and torches to get him. And, and he says this to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. I, I feel like I'm going to die here, is what he's saying. Remain here and watch. And going a little f- farther, he fell on the ground. He, he collapsed. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass away from him. Father, if there's any way, let me dodge this bullet. And Luke, in his account, records that Jesus sweat drops of blood, a rare condition that can happen when we're, we experience overwhelmingly intense anguish. This is the real Jesus in a really hellish state. And what's his response to that? Well, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. His face was set like a stone. He's not going to dodge the cross. He's saying, in my, I'm in agony. I, I, I don't want this agony. But Father, give me the cross because that is how we give them redemption. That's the real Jesus. Experiencing real agony so he can really purchase us for his own. And then he says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. The devil is going to get the boot. I'm going to deal a death blow to him. And then he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. John then says he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, that, that didn't really, just didn't compute with them, their, with their preconceived ideas of, of Jesus. They said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Like, like in the little bit of Bible study that we've done, this doesn't make sense to us. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they're just like absolutely in the weeds at this point. And Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. But while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So what's Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that, first of all, I'm going to be lifted up. He's talking about his death, about the cross. That's how he's, he's going to accomplish his saving purposes. Not a crown. Well, well there was a crown, but it, it's not a coronation, right? It's a cross. And so they push back and they say, look, we, we don't think the scriptures say, I mean, the scripture says he's supposed to live forever. That, this just doesn't make sense. And Jesus know, knew that they were, they were missing a piece of the, of the puzzle. The real Jesus, the real Messiah, involves a, a sacrificial death to pay the debt of sin, but it's also going to involve a resurrection. Yes, he's going to die and be buried, but he's also going to be raised from the dead, and he's going to conquer death and live forever. And so he says to them, because with some urgency, he says, look, the light 
is not going to be on very much longer. So become sons of light. He's calling them. Verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. They, they could not take the real Jesus. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. <coughs> Sometimes when people are confronted with the real Jesus, they just don't believe. In fact, that's why some people, even after they've been around for a while, they're like, whoa, 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 that's what this is about? No, I'm good, thanks. Oh, it's not my own personal Jesus? No, I get to call the shots. I don't want to, to die to that. I want to live in that, right? So we bail. But nevertheless, some do believe. Verse, verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for the fear of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the community, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to risk getting booted out of their community. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's interesting. We, we have to lose things, don't we? We we have divided allegiances, don't we? We have a, a hard time dying to our natural cravings from, for affirmation from people. And, and if you follow the real Jesus, it could get really costly. Identifying with Jesus can be hard. And so then Jesus, with a, with a crowd of people believing and disbelieving and, and his name on everyone's lips, and there are those who want to kill him, and his soul is in anguish, and, and in turmoil, what is Jesus going to do? Is, is, is he going to defend himself? Is he going to, you know, pander to the people to make them like him? No, the real Jesus is going to get back to the real meth, the real message, uh, 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 his real message. And, and perhaps this is the last or at least one of the last public addresses that he ever gives. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. That is, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus says, if you accept the real Jesus, the saving spiritual king, you receive eternal benefits. We receive eternal life. We're spared from judgment, from divine judgment, from an eternity apart from God. We're cleansed from our sins in other places of scripture. It talks about us, about us having white robes. It's a way of saying that we're not going to be stained with sin anymore. We're, we're adopted into God's family. We're accepted by him. We're, we're given a purpose in life that's bigger than ourselves. And so that's John 12. Jesus continues to make these bold claims, and there continues to be this mixed response. Everyone's considering him, and some are believing, some are not. And what's interesting is John doesn't 
doesn't leave it and put a nice tidy bow on it and make nice application points and three little strategies. So, so what do we make of this? What, what are we to do with this? Well, in closing this morning, I want to address basically um, two sorts of folks today. <clears throat> and some of you, you're maybe considering Jesus. And th- you know, I would want to say thanks for having an open mind. Thanks for coming and being with us this morning. And then there are some of us in this room, and we're like, yeah, we're on Team Jesus, right? So first group, if you're here, you're considering Jesus, and you're not really sure what to, to do here, I just want to put this out there. I just want to extend his offer, the, the real offer of the real Jesus, to put your faith in him, to believe in him, because to believe the real Jesus really saves. You know, the, the, there was something that in the first century, that first century crowd was after. There was something they were after when they had that expectation from Jesus. Maybe a bit misguided, but they were still onto something when they were waving their palm branches. They wanted everything to be okay. They wanted a king that would put it all together and put it right. And there's something to that. Listen, listen to what the Apostle John says in the book of Revelation. Uh, looking, looking into to heaven. He's given this peek into heaven, and, and he says this, after this I looked, and, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, a multitude of people he sees in, in heaven, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and get this, clothed in white robes, unstained by sin, with palm branches in hand. There is a day of victory coming, and crying out with a loud voice, and what are they saying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this salvation can be yours because of what he's done. The seed did fall into the ground. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. And he rose from the dead, and in doing so, confirmed that all that this real Jesus declared was indeed true. And for those of us who have already put our faith in in Jesus, have been following him. I, wanna, I, w- I want the promise of the real Jesus to be real to you. And I, and I think what this passage is saying to us is to keep an eternal perspective. I mean, sometimes this world is like, oh, we struggle with our marriages or, or our health or our jobs, our finances. And, I, and I'm not diminishing any of that, those are real and significant things that we have to deal with, but we also need to remember there's a bigger story that we need to keep in perspective, that God is at work doing something bigger. This week I was reading in, in, in Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, it says this about Jesus, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will wail. They'll cry out on account of Jesus. We need, to, we need the reminder that there is yet another the hour has come moment that's still in front of us. Jesus is coming back and we eagerly await as followers of Jesus, his second coming. We, we see this language of longing in the New Testament. You find it in Galatians, you, you find it in Romans. In Philippians 3.20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from, from it we eagerly await a Savior. Speaking there of that anticipation, 
And the reason we often feel at odds with this world is that our citizenship is elsewhere, right? We're children of God. Heaven is our home. And so it often feels difficult, out of alignment, to be here, to live here. And we should have this mindset, oh, I can't wait. In Revelation 19, toward the end of the the book, in, in verse 1, it says this, after this, this is John Again, writing, he says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, that's Jesus, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And if you keep reading in in Revelation 19, his eyes are like fire. And he's got a tattoo on his thigh, and he's got a sword, and he comes. And and this sort of desire that people had way back in John 12 to see Jesus ride in in victory. I mean, that was kind of a legitimate thing. It was just a little farther in the future than they imagined it was going to be. Jesus is going to come back. That hour has not yet come. It's coming. We don't know when it's coming, but... But there's that anticipation, and there are days that I long for it. This week, I felt that longing. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, it's it's in the passage back in John 12, 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. We wait and we follow by serving. We serve. We love others. We serve the poor. We engage the world with generosity, with patience, with humility, with this uncanny sense of of love and tenderness in order to reflect the gospel. Lives lived in in anticipation of the day when Jesus will come back, when he will come again. Lives lived following him by serving like him so that others would be able to consider and believe as well, so that others will, will go, huh, there's something different here. I wonder if I should consider Jesus. Maybe I should believe in Jesus. Maybe I should follow Jesus. Maybe I should serve. All until the hour comes, that hour we eagerly await when Jesus will jump on that white horse and will come with the clouds. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful to you for the hope that you have given uh, for future eternal glory with you in heaven. And it doesn't make the pain and struggle and difficulty of this world go away. Those are, are real things, but, but help us to have that perspective, to, to, to have eyes to see and ears to hear things the way that you see and hear them. Thank you for Jesus being our forerunner in this, for for he could have come with a sword, instead he came on a donkey, so that he could go into the ground on our behalf. Lord, we're so grateful for this saving work. Help us now to to walk in, in that salvation in the way that we live even today and in this week. For it's in Jesus' name that we do ask this. Amen.